And if you'd stand with me out of reverence for this being God's words, I will read each of these scripture readings. At the end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you'd please also respond by saying, thanks be to God. Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Would you turn with me to Psalm 15? Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Steve, and it's uh, an immense privilege to be with you this morning. Um, I'm sorry uh, it might be difficult for you to uh, follow English spoken without an accent, Um, but um, please please persevere, and uh, we'll get there. Um, I bring you greetings from uh, the church that Matthew Spriggs uh, and myself are a part of, Eastside Community Church uh, in Sheffield in England. Uh, we had the joy, privilege of having uh, Brian and Justin with us just a few weeks ago and they were uh, an immense blessing, an encouragement and a delight. Um, so thank you for sending them and thank you for your prayers for us and your support and partnership in the gospel. Uh, it, uh, it means more to us uh, than uh, you can ever know and that's not hyperbole uh, that really is uh, a statement from the heart it really does mean more to us than you can uh, ever know um, let me pray Father thank you uh, for your word uh, thank you uh, that you are a God who has spoken a God who has made yourself known um, a God who has not been content to leave us uh, groping and grasping in the darkness, uh, but a God who has shone the light of your word. 
And thank you uh, most of all for that living word, the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that your word, that uh, the living word might live in our hearts today. Uh, that uh, your face might shine upon us in him. And you might be gracious to us for your praise and your glory. And Father, please uh, help me as I preach to preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Amen. Um, In the interest of uh, transparency, uh, I should tell you that uh, I have been uh, accused of being a legalist in my preaching. And by that I mean that uh, according to some people, uh, I'm too quick to lay burdens upon people uh, and uh, crush them under the weight of, uh, of expectations that, uh, that, that that has been my preaching style. Now, I don't think that's true, uh, but perhaps it's the sermon like this uh, that has led people uh, to think like that. Um, but the issue is, sermons like the one that I'm about to preach um, are can only be preached because of texts like the one that we're looking at this morning, namely Psalm 15. Uh, but before we get into that, let me just talk a little bit uh, about a, a rationale for, for how I think we should approach the, 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 the gospel as God's, word, as God's people. See, I'm utterly persuaded by what is called the indicative imperative uh, dynamic. Now, in case those are unfamiliar terms to you, let me explain what they, they mean. The indicatives of the gospel are those things that by grace are true of me in Christ as a believer. They're, they're, they're true of me irrespective. They're all about what God has done for me. Uh, They're all about the work of Christ, what that has achieved for me. Uh, And because of the work of Christ, these things are true of me. These are the indicatives of the gospel that are mine by grace. Now those indicatives of the gospel are the foundation for the imperatives of the gospel. And the imperatives of the gospel are those things that by that same grace that saved me is the grace that calls me and equips me to live a life that pleases God. A life of obedience, a life of joyful obedience, a life of good deeds, a life that honours God. And, and these two, the indicatives of the gospel, uh, all that God has done for me in Christ by grace, and the imperatives of the gospel, all that, Christ, all that God wants of me uh, through Christ by grace, these two are in a beautiful uh, proportion and relationship with each other. So the indicatives, who I am by grace in Christ, are huge and, and breathtaking. The fact that I can say, I am a forgiven sinner. I stand before you and I stand before God this morning as a forgiven sinner. That's a a glorious statement to make that that nobody can refute. Satan cannot refute that. I am set free from the power of of, of the law and and of sin uh, and of death and the, the tyranny of Satan. I'm a free man and that is true of me in Christ. No one can combine me again. And, and, and I am a, a temple of the living God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. 
I'm a child of God. I get to, because of the Spirit, because of the work of Christ, I get to call God Father, Abba Father. Now these things are true of me, gloriously, eternally true of me. And these are breathtaking truths, aren't they? And that is why the imperatives, by grace what I do for Christ, are so substantial. Because this is true of me, then these imperatives which flow out of them are so, are so obvious, they're so precious, they're, they're so necessary. As a believer, somebody in who, who got us saved and reconciled and rescued, in who, in who the Spirit lives, then a godly life is a, is a beautiful and a tantalizing and a compelling ambition, isn't it? I want to live that kind of life. I want to be that kind of man. I want to be that kind of husband, that kind of father, that kind of friend, that kind of minister of the gospel. But all of that flows out of what God has done for me by grace in Christ. But it's a natural flow. It's an inevitable flow. It's a necessary consequence of that. And if these are significant and substantial, then these are too. Now, if that makes me a legalist, well then, so be it. But I guess that you'll be in a better position to make that judgment for yourselves by the end of this sermon. So, without further ado, let's get into the text of Psalm 15. Look at verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? This psalm begins with a burning question. That's the first point, a burning question. Now, this psalm is probably what they call an antiphonal psalm. You're familiar with that. You may not be familiar with the word, but you're familiar with the practice because you do it as a, as a church when you meet together here. We've done it already this morning. Uh, in other words, it was a psalm that was intended to be sung in the, in, in, in the tabernacle and in the temple during uh, times of formal worship as a sort of back and forth. So the presenter... Uh, would ask uh, that question, verse 1, and the congregation would then recite the answers to that question before the presenter rounds it off in verse 5 with a concluding assertion. Now, this psalm could be one of those kind of psalms, an antiphonal psalm. And, and I think that's a, a, an interesting way of looking at it and reading it, not least because it places it very squarely within the context of, 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 of formal worship, of the people of God gathering together. Not just an individual psalm that we recite or, or read on our own in our own uh, times with the Lord, but the people of God coming together in a liturgical context. Now the vital thing to know about formal worship for the Israelites when they met together in the tabernacle and, and, and in the temple is it was when their identity as God's people was put on show, given a very public display. It was a time to celebrate. It was a time to, to demonstrate not only who they were, God's people, uh, but, but whose they were. That is, 
That's who they belong to. So this opening question really is a burning question, isn't it? It wasn't a question just about occasional religious event or a religious festival, what might happen in a single meeting. No, it's about their identity. Now this tent that it talks about is probably the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build uh, after he came down with the Ten Commandments and the law uh, from Mount Sinai. And the hill or mountain uh, is either Mount Zion, uh, which we've sung about this morning already, or it was Sinai itself. And I think it's probably uh, Sinai. Now, of course, they didn't permanently live in the the tabernacle. They didn't permanently set up home in the shadow of Sinai. But these two events, Sinai and the tabernacle in Exodus, were, uh, were, were those key times when God came down among his people. He came down uh, on, uh, on Sinai, as we saw from that reading from Hebrews 12, and then he came down again when the tabernacle was constructed. But it was a particularly poignant and pointed way to ask what they really wanted to know, namely, who could be at home in the Lord's presence? Who could regard God as, as, as their father and his home as being their dwelling place? Because this is no ordinary tent that they want to live in, is it? It's the Lord's sacred tent. It's the Lord's holy hill or holy mountain. So this question is both important and audacious. In fact, it's the most vital question ever. It's the most vital question anybody could ever ask. Who shall live in your holy tent? Who shall, sacred tent, who shall dwell on your holy mountain? Who can come into your presence, O God? Who can, who can regard that as being their, their dwelling place, their, their habitation? Who can, they, who can regard that as being their, 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 their place to, to sit back and enjoy? What a burning question uh, that is, that is important uh, to be vitally answered. Now, in the context, because it's about tabernacle or temple worship, you'd expect some kind of ritual or ceremony to be the answer. Who can come into your holy presence, O Lord? Well, those who offer the blood of sacrifices, those who engage in ceremonial washing. And those who, who, who undertake certain actions, these are the ones who can do that. But no, that's not the answer here. It's not that the temple or tabernacle worship wasn't familiar with those things at all. It was full of those things. But that's not the answer here, is it? So that's the burning question, verse 1. But let's have a look at the surprising answers in verses 2 to 5a. Because the answer isn't at all what we might call religious. It doesn't involve any kind of ceremony. It's not about any elaborate ritual. There are no words that we're required to recite. There are no cleansing acts that we're supposed to perform. The person who is at home with the Lord is, in verse 2, the one whose walk is blameless, the one who, who does what is righteous. That is the person who lives with the Lord. Now the psalmist goes on to unpack that statement, but this is the summary headline. 
Who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell on your holy hill? Only the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right. But as we look at what this means, as we unpack this along with the the, the psalmist, it's important uh, that we keep this in mind. This is a quote on the... um, on the front page of your, uh, of, your, of your worship sheets. These are not conditions for people who want to belong, these virtues. These are descriptions of people who do belong. And this is a very important distinction. This isn't a, like a checklist that, that you can go through which will somehow then gain you entry into uh, the uh, sacred tent and the holy mountain. This is the life lived by those who are in. This is how we identify those who are at home with the Lord and who can dwell in the Lord's presence. Those whose lives are characterized by that relationship. These are the defining characteristics of those who already reside on the holy mountain. This is the life of those who, that is lived by those who are near to God. They're not the means by which somebody gets to be near to God. Please do keep that distinction in mind because it is so vital. This is a life which reflects intimacy with the Lord, that reflects proximity with the Lord. Simply because these are the kind of virtues which characterize the Lord himself. And those who have made the most high their dwelling place will evidence it by a life that is distinctive and a life that is reflective. Now in this psalm, they fall into four key areas, all of which involve other people, namely our speech, our associations, our integrity and our our faithfulness. But all of them are relational. All of them involve other people. All of them are interpersonal. So let's have a look at them. Speech. Uh, he goes on to say, he who, so the one who can uh, live uh, on the Lord's holy mountain is the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Namely, he speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now in Titus 1 and verse 2, we're told that God cannot lie it's a bold emphatic statement isn't it God cannot lie it's not in his nature to do so well so it is with those who make their home with him so it is with those who belong to his household who have made the most high their dwelling place believers do not merely recite words their words reflect the true character of their heart True Christians are first and foremost first and foremost truth tellers because we are truth lovers. We're not men pleasers, we're not deceivers, we're not manipulators, we're not self-servers. We are speakers and lovers of truth. We are those who speak the truth in love. But the psalmist isn't content to to just leave it in the positive, is he? Uh, The succeeding negatives show us what that actually means in the rough and tumble of life. Whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to his neighbor, who casts no slur on others. 
Now these are not three distinguished, three foci that are to be distinguished from each other. They're all of a piece. True speech that comes from the heart of someone who has made the Lord God their dwelling place reflects God's character and it will always stop someone from destroying another one's life and reputation. Now that word slur or reproach there in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, is a very significant word. Listen to what one commentator says about it. This word carries a sense of social shame and rejection that is highly odious. To utter a reproach, the, the Hebrew is hepa, to utter a reproach against the neighbor is to compromise a person's participation in society and thus to rob one of access to the basic structures of communal life. In other words, someone who has made the Lord their dwelling place doesn't speak of others in a way that cancels them. That's language we're familiar with, isn't it? Believers don't engage in cancel culture. We don't, we don't slander people uh, and, and destroy their reputation so that they have no more means of participating in communal life. So they're ostracized, so they're, they're, they're never listened to. That, that people close their ears to them and everything that they've ever done or said is, is written off. That's not what we do to one another if we belong to the Lord. Why? Because it is evil, isn't it? That's what uh, verse three says, does no evil to his neighbor. This isn't a minor thing. This isn't an inconsequential thing. This is an indifferent thing. It's an evil thing. Listen to this uh, one writer as he explains what slander is, which is what the psalmist is talking about. He says, God hates slander. Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Slander is evil. That's why Paul lists it as a behavior of those who hate God. Romans 1.30. That's why James calls it demonic behavior. James 3.15 to 16. Because of its poisonous power, it is one of the adversary's chief strategies to divide relationship and so to deter and derail the mission of the church. See, our words are very powerful things, aren't they? Words have the power to heal or destroy. They really do. And those who have made the Lord God their dwelling place, those who as it were dwell in his tent and on his holy mountain, don't destroy one another with their words. It's just not what we do. Slander of another is about self-elevation and character assassination. But that's not what believers do. That's not the speech of those who dwell in the sacred tent. That's not the speech of citizens of Zion. But secondly, this walking blamelessly, doing what is right, expresses itself in our associations. Look at verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now the title of this sermon is The Defining Characteristics of a Believer. I think that's a bold title. I think it's a, a confronting title for you and for me as the preacher. Now a Christian 
is definitely more than these characteristics, but we are in no way less than these characteristics. Not in the sense of absolutely. Of course, we all fail. We're all sinners. Even in the era of speech, we have to put up our hands, don't we, and confess, Lord, we have sinned. And isn't it great that we have a, a, a God who invites us to, to come to him in our sin, who invites us to say when we're convicted uh, of what we have done that's wrong, who tells us, look, we can confess our sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the glorious promise of the gospel. So yes, we do sin. But no, this should characterize our lives as believers in the sense that they describe the general tenor of our lives as as those who dwell, uh, sojourn in the tent and dwell on the holy hill. Now this isn't an exhaustive list, of course it isn't. But its selectivity only serves to highlight the importance of these four key areas. To walk blamelessly, to act righteously requires wisdom and care in those that we hang with. You'll be familiar with Psalm 1, I'm sure, which tells us uh, much the same thing, doesn't it? Blessed is the one who does not walk Uh, in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or take his seat in the company of mockers. The Apostle Paul gives us the same instruction in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You see, as believers, we are to be judicious in our relationships, aren't we? There's meant to be a correspondence between those that we hang out with here and the Lord God that we have made our dwelling place. That if our primary relationships are with people who despise the Lord, who reject the Lord, who who, who take his name in vain and dishonor him, if they're our primary relationship, if they're our primary peers, then there is something amiss. We're to make judgment calls about people. That's what God's word says. Naivety, simplicity, as it were, niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. No matter how much we might want to make it one, it really isn't. You can read Galatians 5 as much as you want and you won't find any of those there. Wisdom and holiness require us to weigh people up, to look at the lives of people, to consider the fruit of people. And when it comes to those who reject the Lord, who sin against him in in an open and an arrogant way, a righteous person despises them rather than admires them. A righteous person has feelings of aversion, displeasure, and as one lexicon says, even loathing. No matter how cool they appear, we don't make them our role models. We don't go to them for counsel. We neither want nor need their approval of us, do we? Why? Because we have the approval of the Lord God in whose presence we dwell. Now the people that we run after 
whose company that we should desire, whose opinion matters to us are those who fear the Lord, those who know God, those who who love God, those who cherish God. And the more that someone shows evidence of a life that is lived in awe of the Lord, the more that we should seek their company. Bad company corrupts good character. That's what Paul says. Well, good company facilitates, encourages, nurtures good character. And what it comes down to is the people that we prioritize, doesn't it? Not as those that we want to to win for Jesus, those that we're going to share the gospel with, those that we're going to call to repentance and faith. No, of course we should seek those people out in order to do that. But we can't seek out their company under the pretext of doing that if actually all we do is spend time with them and hang with them and imitate them. Who are the people that play the most influential part in our lives? See, if we are men and women who dwell, who sojourn in his tent and dwell in his holy hill, if we're those people who have made the Lord our dwelling place, then the most influential people in our lives are going to be those who live there with him too. Thirdly, integrity. Verse uh, 4 again. um, Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And who swears to their own hurt and does not change. What we're talking about here are characteristics which reflect those of God himself. By being men and women of whom this is true, we demonstrate that we really do belong to the Lord's household. And this is definitely the case when it comes to this question of integrity. Because God cannot lie, Titus 1-2 tells us that, it's not in his nature to do so, then Everything that he says is true, isn't it? Every promise that he makes, he keeps. All of his promises are in Christ Jesus, yes and amen. He keeps every single one of them, which means that he is the one upon whom we can depend utterly, completely. And this is the kind of person we should aspire to be if we are those who dwell in the Lord's tent and inhabit is holy hill. We should be people whose yes is yes, whose no is no. These are the defining characteristics of a believer. Our word is our bond, even when it's to our cost. What a beautiful virtue that is. But we have to appreciate that the culture that we live in, in this cultural moment right now, this doesn't encourage that, it doesn't even admire that. It is a thing, uh, it's, a, it's a thing to be despised, a thing to be dismissed. Why? Because of this thing that is called expressive individualism, that the only person that matters truly is me. That's why I, I'm free to be and do whatever I want, with whoever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, and however I want. Because it's all about me, it's about my self-fulfillment, my self-actualization, me being true to me. That's the most important thing. And if that means that I break promises in order to be true to me, well then so be it. But that's not what the Word of God says. What a lovely culture would be created, wouldn't it, by a community that is typified, characterized by 
Our yes being yes and our no being no. Well, we didn't need to say, look, I promise I'll be there. Just the very fact that we said it. Yeah, I'll be there. That's enough. These would express hearts that aren't preoccupied with numero uno, characters who reflect the Lord. And that leads us necessarily and inevitably into the final defining characteristic, faithfulness, who lends money uh, to the poor, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now this was a, a big thing in the Mosaic Covenant. Exploitation was anathema. And uh, it's a fact that interest on a loan often compounded the problem of those that you were lending the money to. So, so you were required not to charge interest to a fellow Israelite. And so what the, the psalmist, what David is saying here, is that um, a person who, who, who sojourns in the tent and dwells on God's holy hill does not put out his money at interest. He obeys the law. He, he, he keeps the covenant. Not only his covenant with his God, but his covenant with his brothers and sisters. He shares what he has. And he does not take a bribe against the innocent. That godly people, a defining characteristic of a believer, is that they are not grasping and greedy. They care more about justice and about others than they do about personal gain. And again, what a beautiful characteristic that is. And it's not surprising that it is because this displays the Lord and his generosity. Don't we have a generous God? A God who gives, who causes his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, his rain to fall on both. A God who gives good gifts to men even when they refuse to honor him, acknowledge him and thank him, but continues to bless And what about those of us who are in Christ Jesus? What a good God he's been to us. How generous he's been to us. To forgive us our sins. Because how many are those sins? But he forgives us. He casts them into the deepest sea. And he says, no fishing. He says, I will not remember your sins against you. This is the good God that we worship and therefore this is the kind of men and women, young men and young women, boys and girls that we're called to be as those who have made him our dwelling place. This is what true believers look like. Now it's not an exhaustive lift by any means but it is a very revealing one. And as I said, we can't apply these in an absolute manner given our capacities for sin. But they should characterize the general demeanor of a believer's life. Our speech, our associations, our integrity and our faithfulness. But before we come to the final verse, uh, the final phrase, he who does these things shall never be moved. Um, Let me read a beautiful passage to you from Hebrews 10. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled 
to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the only way to get into this tent To get onto this mountain is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension on our behalf, that has brought us into the presence of God and made him to be our dwelling place. That is why it's so important for us to know that these characteristics are not the means that we get into the tent. But they're the characteristics of those who have been brought into the tent by the person and work of our wonderful Saviour. And with that in mind, let me just reiterate the final point. The confident assertion. Remember this antiphonal psalm. The presenter says at the beginning, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? The congregation then recites what that should, how they should be. He who's walked blamelessly, who does what is right. And then the presenter says at the end that great promise, he who does these things shall never be moved. What a great promise that is, isn't it? Such a person will never be moved from the holy mountain. Such a person will never be evicted from this sacred tent. There's going to be stability and steadfastness. Those who have made the most high their dwelling place, who have found their refuge in God in Christ, are men and women, young men and women, children, young children who are solid, who are dependable, who who are trustworthy, who are Christ-like, who are immovable, who are resolute. These are the characteristics, the defining characteristics of believers. But we've already referenced Hebrews 12, haven't we, in the description of that holy mountain. And through the blood of Christ, our high priest and and, and his sacrifice, that mountain has now become our dwelling place. So let's read on to see where it takes us as we consider what it means to never be shaken. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, to gloom, to storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. The sight was so so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. No, you, you church, have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, see to it, that you do not refuse him who speaks. Because if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake the earth, but also the heavens. Now that word, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is certain things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. He who does these things shall never be moved, shall never be shaken. Why? Because this is the kingdom to which by grace we belong. You see, dwelling with the Lord is the ultimate goal, isn't it? It is our very raison d'etre. In Christ, through his death, through his life, through his death, his resurrection and ascension, we have entered the most holy of places. The holy of holies has become our dwelling place. So let us show that by lives of obedience and our deeds of righteousness. As members of God's household, let us put this culture on display in our speech in our associations, in our integrity, in our faithfulness. That's a beautiful list, brothers and sisters. And what a beautiful and compelling community that would be if these really did characterize our lives individually and corporately. And so my prayer for you is simply that may great grace be upon you all. Let me pray.